Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Edna Mode does for looking fabulous, darling. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies is... Seb Patrick. It's just me and you, Seb. Yeah, James bust out of this one. I was, uh, trying, I was trying to think if this had ever happened before on a main episode. It's, it's certainly been a while if it has. There's been there's been two-handers. I'm pretty sure you and James have done a Just You and James, but I don't yeah. think there's ever been a Just Me and You one. Uh, James was going to be on this one. Um, the, the funny thing is that James has generally like a bit of a thing against Pixar films. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we were still going to do this, and I'm quite amused that actually he, he actually watched this, because I don't know if he'd even... He must have seen it before. Yeah. Uh, but then we had a scheduling problem with our initial recording, and he couldn't make the rescheduled one, which he wasn't unhappy about, because he <laughs> didn't have much to say about it, because he doesn't find Pixar films interesting. Uh, I'm aware that, like... For the majority of our listeners, saying that one of us isn't that keen on this film is probably heresy, so it's probably a good thing that he's not going to be on the rest of it. I mean, as we've discovered when James has talked about animated movies, particularly Pixar movies in the past, he is dead inside. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we, so yeah, the peak behind the curtain was we were supposed to record earlier in the week. Um, Seb got stuck on a train. So we couldn't do it, and then we rearranged for today, and James couldn't do it. But that seemed to make more sense than you not being able to do it, Seb. Yeah, I think I think I think you would have lost the will to live by the end of it if it had just been you and James on this one. So yeah. very possibly me just going. But why, James? Why is that not good? What about actually? I've just that thing. <laughs> I've just realised, although it does say it on the title of the episode, we've said all of this before actually introducing the film, haven't we? Okay, so let's do that. <laughs> What we're going to do today is we'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news and then dive into our spoiler-filled discussion of Brad Bird's 2004 movie, The Incredibles. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb, uh, I'm going to, ask Seb to explain to me a comic book concept that has a movie found that I just don't understand. And... Seb, I think ideally we'd have James for this as well because it's very much his <laughs> wheelhouse, but... Um, I think it's probably something, given its British comic connections, that you should be able to help out with. Who are Excalibur? Because I hear they're coming back. Yes, uh, they are. Um, this, this, this is something that I think it, it probably would be better for James to explain. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure he's read a lot more of them than than I have. Um, I at least have a vague idea because I do generally have um, an interest in. Well, in, in both Marvel and DC, uh, an interest whenever they do British superhero characters. I know that's not interestingly. I don't. I think that's not always the case for British comics fans. Um, but I, I am definitely a British comics fan who likes it when you get British characters in the Marvel and DC universe. Mm. Um, so basically, they are they're an offshoot of the X Men. Um, they are, are sort of they're not exclusively a British team, but they're based around Captain Britain. So that's that's that and and being set, I think, predominantly in kind of London and in the UK is what gives you that hook. Um, I think they first appeared in the late eighties um, with a lineup. I'm probably just going to have to look this up because I can't remember exactly what all what characters were in it aside from uh, Captain Britain. Um, so the original team that we've that we've got that Chris Claremont and Alan Davis brought together were Captain Britain, Nightcrawler, Phoenix, uh, Kitty Pride, aka Shadow Cat. And her dragon Lockheed. So it was mostly it was mostly pre-existing American pre-existing X-Men characters, X-Men characters. Yeah. coming to the UK. Yeah. Um, okay. 
and yeah, it was you know um, a reasonable, I think, success. Um, you know, one of those things that ended up having a kind of ever changing lineup, and then kind of different subsequent versions after that as well. Um, I don't know if there's ever been a version that doesn't have Captain Britain. It's like you can't have a team called Excalibur and not have Captain Britain in it, really. Right, um, fair enough. Um, <clears throat> and then I think when you got, I think the, the issue, probably part of the issue is because it's called Excalibur. And in case you hadn't realised, that's partly a pun on X. So you know, it, it is yeah. specifically an X Men related title. So it generally tends to be mutant characters, although Captain Britain himself is not a mutant. Um, I think it kind of got superseded by um, Captain Britain and MI13, which obviously didn't have the same restriction on it of the characters having to be mutants, although you did have uh, Pete Wisdom in there, who I'm pretty sure that Pete Wisdom was um, first appeared in Excalibur when it was being written by Warren Ellis, because uh, Warren Ellis created Pete Wisdom. Um, and sort of, have you, have you read any of Captain Britain and MI13? Do you, do you know who Pete no. Wisdom is? Uh, no, okay. I I, I know I know who Captain Britain is, but that's about it. Yeah, Pete Wisdom is basically if John Constantine was a mutant in the Marvel universe and and was a spy. Um, right. That's basically <laughs> uh, what he is, and and he had a relationship with Kitty Pride that was a bit controversial at the time as well. Um, but yeah, as I say, this this was all under Warren Ellis's run. Um, so it's it's tended to be a mixture of British hero characters and any mutants that are not really being used elsewhere and could be borrowed. Um, I think there's a reasonable amount of crossover, just looking down the list actually of characters who've been in it. Some of the sort of characters you'd also see turn up in things like uh, X-Factor, you know, like Peter David's X-Factor and stuff like that. It's that sort of, it's those interesting second and third tier X characters. Although, you know, the, that initial lineup, Nightcrawler, um, Phoenix, not actually Jean Grey, by the way. Rachel Summers, uh, I should say. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and Kitty Pride. Yeah, sorry, I should have said that up front. This is what happens when you just read it in a list on Wikipedia. <laughs> Shock horror. We, we sometimes have to look up some of these details on Wikipedia when we're explaining them so we don't get them wrong. Which I realise you could just look it up and that sort of defeats the point of the whole thing, really, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but you you have all the context, and also normally, if we'd had Seb, sorry, if we'd have had James here, James would have gone, "Here's Excalibur," and then you'd have gone, "Oh yeah," and here are these other interesting things. I'm sure that like James will have read a lot more of these than I have, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's interesting, really, that they sort of they they didn't really come about because Marvel wanted to do a British book. Um, they came about because. Chris Claremont had these characters that had sort of that weren't that w- that he that would be moved out of the X books, and he wanted to do something else with them, and he wanted to work with Alan Davis. Um, so that it, it was basically an excuse for them to do something with these characters. Um, and I think obviously Captain Britain not being a mutant, but are you aware that Captain Britain's sister is Psylocke? Yeah, I believe that came up at some point, but. Yeah, because she's she's Betsy Braddock, isn't she? She's Betsy Braddock. Yeah, so so she seemingly died in in a um, an event called Fall of the Mutants. Is um, it her? Is it her brain or her body? Because isn't it like isn't she in like an Asian it's, woman's it's body? It's Betsy's brain in an Asian woman's body. I right. think I think she was originally. Be- I, I don't know when that transfer happened. It might have been when she at this point when she was seemingly killed off. I don't know enough about Psylocke's history. Um, but yeah, and it's quite it's it's nice as a concept because I, I think Marvel's. Marvel's UK-based stuff always tends to be based around the kind of the the magic and the the Merlin mythology. Um, it's you know in in a way that kind of I say for example like when DC do do British characters they don't tend to as much. Marvel's 
Marvel's mythos in the UK is essentially very heavily based around uh, the Camelot and the, the yeah. Arthur myth. Arthurian legend, um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, it's a nice tie into that. Is it, you know, as I say, it's it, it's it's up there as one of the better titles in that it, it crosses over those those multiple meanings. Um so Yeah, it's you know, it's not the kind of um I think the um the original run um was reasonably I think it run for about ten years or so, about hundred odd issues. And then a couple of revivals since then. So it's not be it's not been the most sort of uh, prominent of the X Men spin off books. But it's coming back, um I believe I think is it is this just like a one off annual special? Yeah, so uh, what what I'd seen was that it was the X Men Gold annual. Um, oh that's right, it's X Men Gold. So and it's being co written by so is it it's is it Mark Guggenheim who's writing yeah. X Men Gold? But it's being co written by it's Leah Williams, uh, who Leah I Williams, actually who I follow her on Twitter, and uh, that was the reason this kind of came to my attention. Um, yeah, she's she's, and she's she's very up and coming as a as a writer at Marvel, um, and I haven't yeah, read much of her stuff a, yet. She's but becoming quite a prominent Marvel social media presence as well. That's um, what I was going to say. I haven't read much of her stuff yet, but she definitely is a very good follow on Twitter. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, my um, my concern is always when you get. Uh, I feel like if American comics are going to do stories set in Britain, there should be somebody British involved somewhere because you know. Now I know you know I know obviously comics tend to do stories set all over the place. I'm not saying writers can't do research, but um, I, I'm a stickler for for getting details and dialect right. And, yeah. So as long as we don't get that, as long as we get something more like, um, you know, when when Grant Morrison had a Batman and Robin storyline in London or. Um, was, you know, Captain Britain and MI13 was great. Al Ewing's done some quite good stuff with those characters as well. Um, so... I'm hoping for Captain Brexit. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> I, won- I, I, can't, I can't remember if we've debated this before as to whether or not Captain Britain would be would be leave or remain. Oh god! Uh, I don't want to think about it, Seb. <laughs> I, I worry that that he might vote leave. Yeah, he's a little bit. He's a, he's a bit of an old fashioned toff, unfortunately. So. Bloody Brian Braddock. Okay, so that was Excalibur. Um, maybe I'll maybe I'll pick that up when it comes out. Um, I think it'd be because, worth a look. Yeah. yeah, sounds sounds interesting to me. Um, but we'll move on now to this week's comic book movie. Um, it's just movie news this week. Um, uh, Seb, it, that that's the Justice League, and the Justice wow. League are they're, they're back together. Um, Superman's there, but he's not. He's dead, but he's 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 there. He he'll be there. Um, can we can we just have we discussed the ridiculousness of the fact that they keep doing posters without Superman on, but with Superman's logo among the logos, <laughs> and it's like. I don't. I, I get the thing of not having him in the posters. Um, if, you know that that's what the arc of the film is going to be. But if he's if if he himself is not in the posters, don't use his logo. If you he want to in, use his logo, he, have him in the posters. He was in the first promotional images. For well, the he was movie. in the first so dumb. images. It's so dumb. Anyway, so we we we've got another Justice League trailer. Um, yeah. I think this is probably the last big one before the movie comes out. It feels like that anyway. Um. I'd be shocked. It's a really good attempt to to put people off watching the film, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I mean, so you didn't like it. 
Uh, and you no. were you were big on the Comic Con. I one. I really liked the Comic Con trailer actually. I mean, well, maybe really liked is overstating it, but you you can go back and, and listen to me talking about it. And yeah, I was I was positive about that. I felt it. I felt it showed off what the film's likely good points are likely to be. Well, which was the the sense of scale. It had a bit of a sense of humour. Um, and I think crucially, and this is something that's not the case here. I, I liked the look and the style of it more than I had in the previous trailer. Um, this just looks like a trailer for deleted scenes from Batman v Superman. Um, it's just gone right back to... It's so ugly. It's really, really ugly. That's the main... That's the aside from anything else about the trailer, the first thing that, that jumps out is that this does not look like a visually appealing film it's just I, I mean i i thought that about the second trailer but i thought that about the comic-con trailer as well but this one i think doubles down in it just all of that kind of like red pulsing it's cgi the red. It is in the, the sides yeah and it and it's like and it, it seems like it is i mean we we won't know until we see the film because they're probably keeping a lot of it from us but it seems from the proportion of the film that we're seeing in the marketing like mm. it's a it's you can imagine like an hour of the film looking like that. And yeah. it's just, I mean, that I even include Wonder Woman in this. I think most of the kind of final battle sequences that DC have done in their movies have been like hideously ugly. I think Batman v Superman, well, actually Suicide Squad exists, doesn't it? But Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad have are probably the worst offenders. Man of Steel's final sequence, we've we've talked to death in the past. It's not maybe not that it's particularly ugly, but it's not it's not really that interesting either. Um And yeah, I if if that's what I'm gonna have to watch for an extended period, good God. Mm. Um I, I, it's, I, it's just that's you know, it it it's a style and it's not necessarily you know it's one of those things where like some people will like it and some people won't, and that's fair enough. I'm not saying that there's not a place for it in uh, these type of films, although I think the place for it is Michael Bay's Transformers movies. <laughs> because the thing about this is that it, it doesn't feel DC to me. It's not that like I, I have an inherent thing against just the, you know, the very idea of, of what these films are trying to be or anything. It's like, I, I, I would like to see a film that looks and feels like the DC universe in a way that the Marvel films have felt yeah. Have felt marvelish, um, and actually, do you know? Do you know what film trailer looks and feels the most to me? Like, like how I would imagine a DC movie is Thor Ragnarok. Is the the color and the energy that's in those Thor Ragnarok trailers is what I want to see from DC. And this is not that. This is just fire and explosions and oh, just horrible colors that that don't feel like they come from any point well no they probably do kind of come from a point in in dc history but it's the new 52 that's the problem it's that it's that it's that 90s metallic not even 90s because actually you know i mean we just talked about uh we just released a podcast with me talking about a 90s dc comic that i absolutely love and love the style of which is batman nightfall um but it's that it's that 90s it's actually 90s Marvel, <laughs> Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, uh, image type stuff that just... <sighs> I'm, I realise I'm struggling to put this into words, but it's just it's it's just my disappointment that you have these characters who could be these bright, colourful beacons and 
that's not how they're being presented here. Yeah, um, and, I, and this this is just a trailer where Batman drives around blowing stuff up again. Yeah, and as as for the trailer itself, I mean the the one thing that I can't, I keep finding frustrating is where I hear interviews with like I don't know uh, Ray Fisher or it's it's normally Ray Fisher because he seems to talk about this movie a lot. Um, uh, or kind of anyone connected to the movie or anyone writing about the movie and talking about how like uh, all this humour that's going to be in the movie and how that's going to affect the tone and I, don't, I just don't know whether the like we've collectively as a society misunderstood what the tone of a movie is like <laughs> put, putting some jokes into a movie will not automatically giving it give it a light tone mm. like uh, you know you can watch you can watch loads of action movies i mean like i was um i sat down last week um and uh with my friend we watched the three extended lord of the rings movies back to back which we do every few few years um uh, which is like 12 hours of lord of the rings uh, I, I, you, can, you can judge me all you like I absolutely love it those movies in my mind are masterpieces I don't look at a film like The Two Towers and go oh that's a film that's got a really light tone but every every, every so often you've got you've got funny little gags you've got Gimli making a witty aside or you've got um, kind of a raised eyebrow from Orlando Bloom or you've got like Gollum being funny despite being hideous or whatever he is so like that's not a film that has a light tone but it has humor and i and i i worry that like dc are trying to sell or warner brothers and everyone involved with this movie are trying to sell it as it's got a lighter tone and by that they mean we've put some gags in it and if those gags are kind of out of place as they have occasionally felt in the marvel universe you know like the, the some of the gags in uh Doctor Strange um I think is is one that we can definitely pick out uh but you know that's that's and that's what that trait this trailer sells to me which is a dark grim unrelenting movie where they've kind of gone like oh yeah but the these these occasional jokes though and and to be honest like I don't know whether it's the way that the trailers cut them together but a lot of them fall flat here um, yeah, this. I mean, the, uh, the the joke at the end of this trailer is terrible, and it's the, it's the first moment actually where I've th- well, the, actually, the, the two characters who've generally been the bright spots through the trailers have been Flash and Aquaman, yeah. and in both cases in this trailer, it's starting to feel like they're gonna wear thin really quickly. I know you've generally not. Is it you or James who's not been as keen on Jason Momoa's Aquaman in the trailers as pretty much yeah, everyone else has? It's been? me. I, well, yeah. it, it's def- I'm definitely, I don't know whether it's James as well, but I, I'm just, I'm struggling to get Aquaman. But in, in this trailer, I watched him and I thought, this is going to be a bit much. And, yeah. you know, I, I really like um, Ezra, Ezra Miller as Flash from the look of it, but um, that last scene is cringy. It's- I like, again, I like Ezra Miller, but I'm... I, I'm worried about this. But, I mean, I was worried about Wonder Woman, and I think Wonder Woman is an incredible movie, and um, I'm problem, hoping that that will yeah. be the case here. What, I, what, I, what I, I'm struggling to understand is how Batman is still central to this marketing campaign. Mm. And what, thing, why is it thing, not Wonder Woman? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why Wonder Woman is fantastic, but one of them is the fact that at pretty much every point in Wonder Woman, you have got one of two leads who are incredibly charismatic on the screen at any given point. This film has only got one of those two people 
doesn't have anyone else with anything like the level of charisma and she is only one of several characters and you already know that she's not going to be on screen for like 80-90% of the running time. It's probably going to be more like 50-60% of the running time if you think about how they'll they'll distribute things. And it just doesn't look like it's going to have anything like that level of charm and charisma at all. Um, and you know, and it's got it's got great people in it. It's got J.K. Simmons and it's got Amy Adams. But you know, Amy Adams, God, that, this this cinematic universe sucks the life out of Amy Adams. And <laughs> you know, just seeing her at the start of this trailer, I almost felt sorry for her. I was like, you're you're an amazing actress. You're genuinely one of my favorite actresses working at the moment. You're playing Lois Lane, who you know, is one of the most important comic book characters to me. And there's just nothing there at all. I mean, actually, I thought pretty much the only bright spot of the trailer was a smiling Henry Cavill. But all that's going to do is just remind you that most of this film is not going to have a smiling Henry Cavill in it. And when it does, we're lacking the moustache, which has been CGI'd off, which is (laughs) devastating for everyone involved. Yeah, the other thing I'm going to have to remain sold on, that this is a world that has been devastated by Superman's death because... Uh, what? <laughs> yeah. it, I, you've not you've not sold me on a world where that would be a thing. Um, mm. Can I just actually? That was one of the things I wanted to pick up on. Was this trailer has this bit of of news broadcast that says the world remains in mourning after the death of Superman. Violence, terrorism, and acts of war are all on the rise. When have you ever heard a news report that talks like that? News reports are about <laughs> what is happening. They are not a general summary of what's been going on over the past few months. <laughs> like, in what context would there be a news report that handily summarised the fact that Superman died a while ago and bad shit has um, happened? It's, I think it's like uh, Gotham's equivalent of uh, Charlie Brooker's screen wipe. Uh, and really, what we're not seeing is that it's all it's all been done through a really jovial, sarcastic context. Um, I, I did as well. Just want to remark on a couple of things. I know we talked about this trailer for ages now, but um, the the music. Um, I'm not going to talk about the dreadful cover version of Heroes because I think everyone on the internet's done that, and oh, it just sounds like you too. Um, I do find it really interesting that at the start it has the um, hang uh, the Hans mm. Zimmer Man of Steel theme because weren't there rumours that it, this was going to go back to using the John Williams theme? Oh, I, I don't know. So to use the, the Zimmer one in a trailer. Yeah, there's rumours that it's going to have both the Danny Elfman Batman theme and the, the John Williams Superman theme in it, which even as someone who thinks that the John Williams Superman theme is the greatest piece of movie music in history, that is ridiculous. It not just, And I don't even mean in a sense of, oh, it sullies the memory of the Christopher Reeve films. Because if, if Man of Steel had used the John Williams theme and that theme had been used throughout, then fine. But Man of Steel, one of the few things that it really has going for it is that it has a fantastic theme that actually works as a modern, new Superman theme and doesn't make you go, oh, I wish we had the John Williams theme. So why would you ditch that when it's been one of the few good things about both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman? The the only thing I can imagine is that when they bring Superman back, they're implying that he's a different Superman and that he's more of a throwback to Reeve. That's the only function I could see that serving. I mean, that just makes so little sense <laughs> in terms of what yeah. the story might be doing. Okay, um, so our second piece of news. I don't think we need to talk about this for too long, Seb, because it's something that we're still not convinced whether it is actually important or not. Um Gambit, according to Deadline, <laughs> has a new director in the frame. Uh, Deadline reported that Gore Verbinski, 
is in talks to write, to direct Gambit. So, Seb, first question. Are you any nearer to thinking that Gambit is a movie that will actually happen? Well, I wasn't um, until I... This, this may surprise you, but actually until I looked up uh, Gore Verbinski, uh, just to you know, kind of look back over, over what he'd done, I'm sure you'll run us through that in a minute and, and his career <laughs> and why he's an interesting choice. But I'm going to drop a spectacular fact on you, unless it's something that you already know. Um, and I believe that this means that that fate has decreed that this film is going to happen and that uh-huh. Gore Verbinski is going to direct it. I can't wait. Because in 1995, Gore Verbinski directed a music video for a song by Monster Magnet called Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Well, there we go. So, I mean... Uh, Obviously, the film is going to happen, and he's going to direct it, and Negasonic Teenage Warhead is going to be in it. Because what other possible outcome is there? So I've fully yeah, swung and then, around, and then you can bring Gambit into yeah. X Force. I've totally swung around my position on whether or not Gambit <laughs> is going to happen, purely based on that fact. Now, if nice. if it gets announced that he's definitely not making it, then obviously I retract that. I don't believe that anyone other than Gore Verbinski will ever direct a Gambit movie. So I'm still I'm still convinced it's going to happen. I still think with Channing Tatum remaining attached, which he is, I feel like this is a little bit like the Ryan Reynolds Deadpool thing. Like, <laughs> like he just won't let it go. <laughs> yeah, it will it will be willed into existence. And also from Fox's point of view, they've got Channing Tatum attached to this character. If Channing Tatum like leaves this project, why would Marvel or DC not jump at the chance to just find a character for him to play, like just anyone, because Channing Tatum's the best. He can do comedy, he can do action, he can do romance. He's like, I think he's like one of our most complete movie stars um, <laughs> that we've got. So I, I, I mean, I don't give a, I don't give a crap about Gambit, but a Channing Tatum movie, yes, and a Channing Tatum movie directed by Gore Verbinski. Um, I still haven't seen a cure for a cure for wellness, which came out last year. But Korbinski is a director whose movies, even when I don't enjoy them, I kind of respect the craft of them. So a movie like The Lone Ranger, which I really don't like, that you can't watch that train sequence and go anything other than, wow, fair enough, how did you pull this off? Um, The Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, again, I think the problems there are script. Mm. He directed Rango, which is a fantastic animated film. And he directed Mouse Hunt, said. Mouse Hunt. Well, the the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie is, is a classic and is the kind of movie where you look at it and think, well, this is a tremendously entertaining, family-friendly action film. The kind of person who can direct this should be able to direct a really good superhero movie. Um, but actually, yeah, if anything was to give me confidence in him as a filmmaker, it's more likely to be Mouse Hunt because that is, that film is a masterpiece. Um, yeah, and it's and it's a you know, there's a lot of reasons why it's great. Um, a lot of it's probably to do with Nathan Lane, but you know, it's it's a farce and it's a slapstick farce, and for that reason. You know, it, it, there's directing skill involved in in making that a good and coherent movie. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm hoping this comes to pass. I'm hoping that we get to see a Gambit movie starring Channing Tatum and directed by Gore Verbinski. I think it's the name more than anyone that I've gone. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, now let's try and get let's try and get the cogs turning on this one because I believe we're now. Uh, 
a year past the release date for Gambit, so <laughs> they really should get a wriggle on. I think Gambit's more likely, based on the Justice League trailer, I would say Gambit is more likely to happen than a cyborg solo movie. <laughs> and Justice League Dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, um, that's it for this week's comic book movie and TV news. Uh, we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Brad Bird's 2004 movie, The Incredibles. Uh, but before we do, let's take a listen to the trailer for the movie. This is something. That's fine. I mean, I can break through walls, I just can't. That's fine. Get this. <laughs> Showtime. No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for, for ten minutes? I'm at the top of my game. I'm right up there with the big dogs. Girls, come on. Leave the shaving of the world to the men? I don't think so. Super ladies, they're always trying to tell you their secret identity. Think it'll strengthen the relationship or something like that. <laughs> Mode. Your suit can stretch as far as you can and still retain its shape. Virtually indestructible and machine washable, darling. That's a new feature. Okay, so that was the trailer for The Incredibles. Um, Seb, before we get going, there's a particular reason why we're discussing The Incredibles this week, or why or why it came to mind for us to discuss. Because we were originally going to do Kingsman 2 this week, mm. and we kind of we saw the reactions to that film, we saw how long it was, and we thought, do we <laughs> want to risk going to see a film that long that could potentially be really boring to talk about, and that people... Uh, the reviews are kind of like, ugh, uninspiring. So we looked at the schedule and we're like, what could we fit in? And you were like, oh, we could do The Incredibles. And here's why. So tell the listeners <laughs> why, Seb, because it's a fun story. Uh, yeah, I, I, I recently met one of the cast members of The Incredibles, but in sort of not really in a context that you would expect to meet someone who was uh, a voice actor in a 2000s Pixar movie. So basically last year um, I discovered... Um, a band who basically fairly immediately became my new favourite band. Um, they're a uh, sort of power pop bubblegum rock band um, from I think I think based out of New York um, called Charlie Bliss. Um, I discovered them online because I was um, finding various kind of bands and there's sort of there's, there's there's a few other bands like kind of like Roswell Kid and a few others who all have this thing where they're quite young and they grew up on early Weezer records and so they sound like the early Weezer records like the Blue Album and Pinkerton um 
and Charlie Bliss are one of these bands, and they they really do. I mean, I don't want to do them a disservice by just saying they only sound like one thing. Although, um, you know, there, there's other things that they're influenced by, but I'm sure they'd freely admit the Weezer influence. They are all fans. They basically sound like early Weezer, but with a girl singer. Um, they're really, really great. Just really kind of tuneful and and fun and and um, very enjoyable band. Um, but they came and played. They came and did a, a UK tour. Um last month i think it was um, which surprised me actually because like you know they're, they're not massive yet at all you know and you sort of you don't generally expect american bands of that size to come over and play a load of uk gigs but they they played in liverpool in a quite small venue um now i'd i'd, I'd read online that um that their guitarist uh, went by the name of spencer fox um and that he had been the voice of dash in the incredibles um and it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes on the internet, names can get conflated and, like, um, you think that two people are the same person just because they have the same name. So I didn't know for certain if it was definitely the case that he was Dash. Um, you know, it could just have been that, that someone had seen the two names online and then and then put it as a fact on, on the Wikipedia page without actually checking it. Um, but they came and did this gig in Liverpool um, and it, as I say, it was in, in this quite small venue. Um, so... Before before they started, kind of while some of the support bands were on, um, spent I actually saw Spencer at the bar. So I went up to him and I said, "I've just got to ask because there's a really silly question, but can you can you confirm in whether this is a, an urban myth on the internet? But were you Dash in the Incredibles?" And he he kind of he kind of looked a little bit sheepish, and he said, "Yeah, I was. You know, I, I used to be a voice actor. I did a few films, and yeah, that was me in that film." And I was like, "Oh, fantastic! It's such a great film." And I started to tell him about how you know I, I did a podcast about comic book movies and how we hadn't covered the Incredibles yet. But he, were ho- he we would we were hopefully go into. Um, so I, I said I'd tell them when you know, kind of send them a message on Twitter when we'd done this episode, and uh, I don't know if they'll bother to listen to it, but um, you know they might. Um, but there are there are really the off re- chance that he does. Seb, who's your <laughs> yeah. favourite character in The Incredibles? Edna Mole. <laughs> uh, it's it is it's funny actually as well because sort of you know obviously from talking to as as you would expect from someone who's in their twenties now and was probably like what ten or eleven when uh, when doing this film you wouldn't be able to tell he doesn't sound anything like it um, although you know kind of he's he's not the singer in the band and I wonder if you know if he was if his sort of uh, if his singing voice might betray hints of it or not. Um, but he's he's a very good guitarist, and actually, I'll, just to kind of show how good Charlie Bliss are, although they may not be to the, to the taste of everybody, although they should be because they're great. Um, I'll play in at this point a bit of them, and sort of particularly Spencer's guitar playing because he does some pretty excellent um, crunchy guitar solos. And if you like them, go and check out their album Guppy, which came out earlier this year, because um, it's really, really great. And they are they are they're really nice people and a really great band and a very fun live band, like really, really tight and really enjoyable. So, uh, yeah, so that that was my brush with Dash from The Incredibles. Excellent. Um, 
Well, should we talk about the film itself, Seb? Yeah, <laughs> because pretty, it does pretty good, isn't it? It's, pretty, it's all right. Yeah, it's pretty you know, good movie. It's, I, 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 it seems to have quite an, an esteemed reputation among people who like. Apart from James, like because James doesn't like Pixar, like everybody else who likes superheroes seems to love this movie. Yeah, it was one I think when it first came out, I didn't fall immediately in love with it. Um, in in terms of like the Pixar canon, but like I think just as a kid growing up with Toy Story, I wanted everything Pixar to be like Toy Story, and I think this came on the back of Finding Nemo as well, which really does feel like it's exactly in that mode as well. Um, but yeah, every time I go back to it, I think I enjoy it more, um, and I am a big Pixar fan. I think especially especially from this period, I I I, I don't think anyone would argue that kind of like the last five or six years of Pixar have been as strong as what came before that. Mm. But everything, almost everything from this period, this kind of period, even the first Cars is a lot better than its reputation. Um, and and, and, well, this, this, still, this, and is, this still stands out, I think. I mean, this is this sort of comes from... Um, this, the, like, the, the run that this sort of... Um, comes around. I mean, it, there's there's cars immediately after it, which yeah, as you say, is maybe better than its reputation. I think the sequels have harmed the reputation of cars, but I, I would say that cars was maybe the first one that didn't quite live up to the standards. But then you've got the run of Ratatouille, Wally, Up, and Toy Story Three. It's like if you took cars out of that run, um, you know, you'd be uh, you'd have kind of pretty much perfection from kind of every film that was released in the two thousands by them. Um, do you have do you have like a top five Pixar Seb? Um, this I think this might just sneak in. I think it would be all three Toy Stories, Wall-E and this. <laughs> See, uh, I cheat. I can't separate the Toy Stories. I have to group them all together if you, if, and then give you a further four. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you grouped the Toy Stories as one, which I'd which would be happy to. And incidentally, I, I would rank the Toy Stories three, two, one as well. But it's it's so it's fine margins between them. Oh. Every Toy Story film is utterly perfect at what it's doing. So I would say, yeah, the Toy Stories grouped together. Wally, Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Up. Mm. That's interesting because Ratatouille is another Brad Bird picture, but one that he he kind of took over midway through. Yeah. Um, whereas the 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 Incredibles is kind of his. I think I would go. Yeah, the Toy Stories, the Incredibles, Wally. Oh, it's difficult finding Nemo. And. I don't think Up would sneak in there for me, so maybe it would be a Bug's Life, which I think is Dis- slightly underrated. I don't know, it's difficult though, but <laughs> Pixar have made lots of good movies. Yeah. Despite the fact that I do think the Toy Stories are among cinema's greatest achievements, though, Wally is my number one. I just, I, yeah, I can't. I, you know, Wally is, to me, one of the absolute greatest films ever made of, of any genre. It's just. And it's one of those where it's like, the first time I saw it, I was like, well, the first time, you know, the, the the point up until he gets onto the spaceship is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And then the stuff on the spaceship is okay. And then as the years have gone by, I've come to love the stuff on the spaceship almost as much as the stuff before he gets onto the spaceship. So, yeah, he's the best, literally like the best silent comic since Charlie Chaplin in that movie. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Um, the Incredibles, though, which we still yeah. not really talked a bunch about. Um I think we should start by addressing the the kind of the line that's trotted out about the Incredibles 
um, all the time. So if anyone doesn't know, the kind of basic setup is that there is um, Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl who are superheroes and they get married at the at, at the kind of right at the start in the kind of prologue section. Uh, but the prologue section ends with like a guy suing Mr. Incredible and it leading mm. all of the costumed it's, superheroes into retirement. It's basically it's 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 Civil War crossed with Watchmen that that yes. opening because it's you have the I mean it's you have the sort of you know an incident means that suit that, that the government wants all superheroes to unmask which is basically Civil War but instead of registering you basically get an act that sort of drives them all away slash underground which is Watchmen so it's yeah. uh and yeah. and yet and yet it feels it feels kind of unique. So I mean, the the kind of the the idea of a world that used to have superheroes that doesn't any anymore, I'm sure mm. has been done a lot of times. <clears throat> but this this just it it feels like it has its own kind of setup, and it kind of has this the world it establishes in the prologue. It feels like very throwback, like um, like almost. Not quite as not quite as campy, but Batman sixty six style, you know, with the mm. kind of the villains that he's dealing with. It's Bon Voyage, isn't it? And, oh, and, bon and stuff like that. Great, yeah, absolutely wonderful. But so we we kind of flash forward into the present, and all of the superheroes have gone into retirement. They're just kind of living as their alter egos, normal lives. Mister Incredible and Elastigirl are married, and they have two kids. There is Dash, who also super powered, he can run really fast, and there's Violet. Um, who can create force fields and can become invisible. And there's Jack Jack, who doesn't have any powers and definitely will never have any. <laughs> who is their little baby? Don't 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 you think it's really it's really interesting that being able to turn invisible is paired with a force field power? That's such an unusual combination. I can't see where they got that from. <laughs> so let's talk about that. This is frequently described as the best Fantastic Four movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you buy into? Do you think the parallels are that directly there? Because it, se- it seems to have some of the stuff. It seems to tick some of the boxes. It's not quite a direct correlation, is it? It isn't. I mean, obviously, the ways in which it is is, is that it's that it's about a family, and you know, while shuffled around slightly and and with a with a speedster substituted for the Human Torch, you know, they they do have the power set, and you know where it where it hits the the fantastic four thing is is it being about a family and the kind of the metaphorical aspect to the powers obviously like with with the fantastic four you know they're sort of they're not they're not a literal nuclear family you know it's a it's a a a, a husband and wife eventually um a brother-in-law and their friend but you know the point is is, is that they are still a family unit whereas the incredibles are literally you know a husband and wife and kids yeah um but yeah i think it's you know, it's it's obviously not just a straight take on the Fantastic Four because they can't get away with that. Although, ironically, um, <laughs> Disney now um, own those properties. Although Disney can't make a Fantastic Four movie, but even so, you know, did Disney own Marvel now? So it, that that kind of does put a slightly different, um, um, to, you know, I th- I think it was um, one of that that reminds Mar- me. Mar- when- Marvel wouldn't sue Pixar if Pixar now made a film that was closer to the to the Fantastic Four. Is is what I mean? But I do remember um, when when Marvel uh, ugh, when Marvel when Marvel and Pixar were both kind of brought under the the Disney banner throughout the late two thousands. Mm. Um, when that happened, I think the first thing that everyone said was, "Oh, God, which um, God, which Pixar." Which which movie is going to be turned into a which comic book property is mm. going to be turned into a Pixar film? It seems like that an absolute no brainer. And then instead we got Walt Disney Animation Studios doing Big Hero Six, and everyone kind of scratched their heads and went, Who? "Yeah, what's what's that then?" 
<laughs> yeah, and and trying as much as possible not to remind people that Big Hero Six was based on a comic. Yes, um. exactly. <laughs> yeah, they didn't lead with Marvel's Big Hero Six or anything. No, like that, very they? very much not. Quite yeah. the opposite, in fact. Yeah. Um, um, so going so going back to these the, these the Fantastic Four parallels here. Um, is there an argument that the power set here in the Incredibles works a lot better than it does in the Fantastic Four because it's like someone hasn't randomly allocated mm. superpowers. It's someone who's put thought into what are what are nice metaphors for each of these characters here. Yeah, and it's and it's incredibly on the nose. It's like there's nothing subtle about how each power represents like the role in the family, but I don't mind that because it's it's so it really works. It's it's so well done in terms of, you know, and I think it's I think it's partly that it's, you know, it's almost each 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 power not just represents kind of what that family member is, but kind of what that family member kind of feels like they have to be, you know. So, you know, Mr. Incredible has to be strong and has to be the rock and and Elastigirl has to be constantly stretching to to keep her family in check and and wrap herself around them, you know. Um, the, the fact son, that there are, the that there are just wants with, to run wild, yeah. whereas the kind of angsty teenage daughter just just, just wants, wants to hide, just yeah. wants to be invisible, doesn't want people to. She wants to keep people at arm's length. Mm. Um, but then, but then I think one of the fun things of the film is seeing that kind of stuff chip away and seeing um, the characters progress to a point where they they're like. By almost as they embrace their powers, they become less defined by those cliches of them as, mm. the, as the movie progresses, which I think is 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 a really really nice fun little arc for all of these characters. Mm. Um, and also I mean, crucially, the... they they sell all of those characters, don't they? They yeah. yes yes these metaphors are kind of the cliched versions of yes what a dad a mum and two kids would be, but. All of these characters feel so fully realised. I mean, the voice performances are great, but they're just they're just really really well written. You kind of get you see you see their personalities beyond the metaphor that Brad Bird's presenting to you. Yeah, but I yeah. I, I, I I think I mean as as regards you know that question of is it the you know is it the best Fantastic Four movie and it it, it it's a nice line, but I think it's sort of. I think it overlooks something that's quite interesting about this film and sort of potentially a controversial statement. But in a lot of ways, this isn't completely a superhero movie. Like in terms of in terms of genre and style that it's playing with. You know, like the the story is a superhero story. So well, I guess this. I mean, this comes back to and we've talked about it many times before about yeah. how superhero isn't really a genre, and so really this is this is this is a, but this you know this so this film is not a take on the classic superhero genre, although it has superheroes in it. So much as you know, the genre that it's playing in really is is the sixties spy um, movie, which you know even sort of Brad Bird has said you know that's as much an influence on him because Brad Bird isn't really. He's not really a big comics guy, um, so it's not like he's doing this film as a big tribute to the superhero comics and films that he loved yeah. as a kid. He's doing it as a tribute to the some of the superhero stuff that he kind of liked as a kid and to the 60s spy films that he loved as a kid. But I think also, it, it was kind of watching this made me think, actually, that so many of the trappings of that genre 
do kind of cross over with superhero and in, and in a lot of ways i think i mean I, I i would not dispute if somebody wanted to say that james bond films are basically superhero films as well um so in in a way, I have kind of come back around to saying that this is a superhero film for that reason. But if you think about the sort of the the genre tropes of the indestructible hero who fights villains who have big elaborate underground lairs, you know, there's a there's a lot of crossover there. And I think it's just that you know, the period in which those films were fashionable was a period in which Batman sixty six aside, superhero movies were not fashionable, uh, and you know, and particularly then through the seventies as well. Um, and so actually, yeah, this is, this is sort of, it's, it's got its feet in, in two kind of movie genres, but they are two movie genres that have, um, that have maybe more in common than might initially seem. It feels like a forerunner in a way, doesn't it? Because I think the, the superhero movies that come before this Mm. are mostly straight superheroes. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing. So, so again, we coming back to that, that line about superhero is not a genre. I think that's the case now, but in in movie terms, certainly, you know, I think superhero was a genre up until the the kind of mid two thousands when you started to get superhero movies that actually were about superheroes and playing in other genres. And actually, yeah, this this is probably one of the earliest examples. Um, You know, as I say, you you can imagine a version of The Incredibles that gets all of its imagery and styling and, and mythos and stuff purely from like superman and batman and spider-man you know like the, the, those pre-existing superhero comic book movies um but actually yeah the, this is kind of moving it put, putting the, the the characters and the tropes into a different genre yeah and, and basically saying yeah that you know that they can they can be in other types of film yeah and it and it really works it and i almost think probably the way it works so much is because for much of the film it feels like Bob is in the spy movie and that there's kind of a family drama unfolding around him. And because his powers, because his powers are basically like he's strong, he's 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 got like some some edge on the rest of humanity. That is kind of what James Bond is. James Bond has just got like he's physically able to do more than your average man. Mm. It's it stays grounded within real world physics. Mm. But he just he just is better. Than well, us. I'm not sure it stays grounded in real world, well, world physics. D- the amount that he gets shot and doesn't yeah. die. I mean, yeah, I would in, in much the same way as I'm. You know, I'm I'm fervently of the belief that Sherlock Holmes is a superhero. Um, and I I would happily if you can call Batman a superhero and Batman doesn't have superpowers. Yeah. Although, well, Batman Batman's superpower is being Batman. James Bond's superpower is being James Bond. James Bond. I think James Bond is no less a superhero than Batman is. Except for the fact that Batman wears a costume, and it's but then James Bond wears a costume. To. It's his tuxedo. You know, his tuxedo yeah. is his superhero outfit. And it's something we've come back to on various on on mini shows on previous episodes in the past. But like something that has come up for me as someone who's new new to comics over this past two or three years is how much of an influence James Bond is on certain writers within comic mm. books, certain comic books themselves. And certain comic book movies as well, you know, like you, we we talked about Kingsman basically being, you know, just an entire riff on James Bond, and we talked mm. about comics like Velvet or even some like even Ed Brubaker's um, superhero stuff, like the Winter Soldier feels mm. very James Bond inspired. 
Um, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I Winter Soldier mean, is a great Iron example Man. because it's putting a superhero in the spy genre. I mean, a, a straighter spy thing than... Um, I mean, Winter Soldier is based, is not so much putting a superhero in James Bond as it is putting a superhero in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but yeah. it's, you know, it's the same principle, really. And obviously, <clears throat> it's it's nice to have Brad Bird doing this. I don't know if you are a fan of the Mission Impossible franchise, Seb? Um, I like the first film quite a lot. I remember it, but probably beyond that, um, don't have much okay. <laughs> interest or memory. Well, I mean... Brad Bird directed, uh, I mean, it was Ghost Protocol, wasn't it? The fourth one, Ghost Pro. And for my money, it is the it's the best. I know a lot of people liked Five when it came along a couple of years ago, um, but just visually, that you the stuff that Brad Bird is playing with in that film, the the kind of you can see when he gets his hands on the box of tricks that the Mission Impossible franchise has already, with kind of like. You know the, the the face technology, or like the little gadgets that pop up and cut and 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 that Tom Cruise and Co can play with in that franchise. Um, you can tell that Brad Bird has walked into that and has gone, "Oh, I know exactly what I want to play with in this toy box. I want to do mm. this, and I want to do this, and I want to do a little twist on that, and I want to do that." Um, and I think he's a really fine action director. I think he, I mean. He came into this what with the, the Iron Giant already, already to his name, and then uh, Ratatouille soon afterwards. And Ratatouille is a film that um, I've always struggled with a little bit on a conceptual level. Um, but I think ultimately the reason why I end up still enjoying it is because of Brad Bird and the kind of layer of charm that he's able to put back on top of it. And I just, I, I just think he's a really, really wonderful director. It's a shame that Tomorrowland didn't quite work out for him. Um, but he is, he is one of those directors that I'm just, I'm always fascinated with what he's going to do next. And mm. for me, the kind of that, like it's this and Rogue Nation, that I go back to and I look at and I go, I, I just look at the kind of the way that he's constructed kind of individual scenes. Uh, the the ideas that he's playing around with just in the background, um, and he's just a wonderful director. And and this this movie is gorgeous. And because it was it it was such a departure for Pixar in terms of what they tended to do. Mm. It was we hadn't seen many humans relatively in the, in the Pixar world, and we hadn't no. seen and we hadn't seen this kind of like anything that really reflected a real world. I mean, Toy Story is a is is mostly confined to like cartoonish versions of like children's rooms and, you know, a bug's life is 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 down in the dirt and finding Nemo's in the sea and suddenly we're in we're in cities and we're in people's houses that we are although they you know like, it's, it, it it is a real world, but it's a, it's a very stylized and a very kind of picture book world, isn't it? You know, it's got, I mean, the styling is, is one of the things I love the most about this. And that yeah. goes right back to, I remember seeing the, the very original, uh, teaser trailer, uh, which is mostly, um, him in, in the basement, but with all that kind of lovely sixties ish artwork of, of, from his career kind of thing. Yeah. All, um, all of the life magazine. Yeah. And all of the newspaper headlines and his suit in the in the like glass cabinet and stuff. 
but you know the but the world that they live in is i mean it's 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 kind of retro futurist because it's sort of it, it's a world where stylings have not advanced since the 1960s but technology has yes so it's kind of it's it's, it's modern technology but everything is 60s styled which, well it's you know. it, and, and then it becomes futuristic technology so you've got mm. that 60s style but then you've got the um you've got the kind of the tablets and the and the uh Robots yeah, and all it's, that it's, kind of it's, stuff funny, that... it's funny actually that in 2004 he gets that message on what is literally an iPad. <laughs> and it's, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, that's just a that's just a boring normal piece of technology now. <laughs> and I think one of the things that comes in and really, really elevates that whole style that that throwback. Uh, the, I mean, you, you nailed it. The retro futurist vibe of this film is the Michael Giacchino score. Now, I wondered when we were going to get to that. I forgot that he'd done this, and his name oh. came up at the start, and I was like, "Okay, Joe's going to be talking about that for a little while." Then, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you, you, you like Michael Giacchino's music almost as much as I like Spencer Fox's. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's not a constant, but I think where it is a constant is Pixar. So, I mean, I I fell in love with Michael Giacchino's music watching Lost, uh, which I don't think there has. Uh, it's a bold claim, but I don't think there's ever been a TV show that has as strong a score as Lost had. Um, with Giacchino just creating, like he he created new music for every single season. He he has soundtrack albums for every single one of them. Uh, one of his tracks played at our wedding, um, literally as my wife was walking down the aisle, and I I am in love with the guy in terms of in terms of the kind of the stuff that he's done there and. And subsequently for Pixar, I think his finest work with Pixar is up. I think mm. it, 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 I didn't know that was him as well, but obviously, yeah, you ev- everyone knows exactly, yeah, what what bit of music you're talking about mm. when. Uh, yeah, know. well, there's there's Married Life, isn't there? And um, I mean, there's a couple of tracks later on as well, but there's, I mean, that the, the kind of the theme to up, you can just walk down the street whistling it. Um, mm. I, I, I will. Same, I will just say, as far as, far as TV here. shows with with scores, sorry, but but I mean, while it's had its weak points, Murray Gold on Doctor Who and Howard Goodall on Red Dwarf, they they both did series by series bespoke mm. music for, and they're both wonderful. But obviously, those are shows that I love, and Lost is a show that you love. So I think I think with TV, you're naturally inclined to love music when you love what's going on on the screen as well. Um, it was just I, I, it was just something that I hadn't really. Um, acknowledged too much before until mm. I heard that music and you know then went went back and started listening to I think I think actually with I think yeah and I, I think you know obviously you know American TV does have a, a tradition of, of being scored but it's often quite sort of um generic yeah and so and and you know tend to, I don't want to say kind of churned out or whatever but 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 the volume of of television you know means that you kind of have to work quite quickly on it and so you can understand kind of uh, people taking shortcuts and stuff so yeah a show like you know, of the many ways in which lost brought a, a different approach to to american tv i think scoring tv like it was a a movie is definitely uh is there any way to say that we can ever try and sell lost as a superhero tv show and then i can do Maybe an extended <laughs> series on this podcast about Lost. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, there's, uh, there's there's superpowers. Well, there's supernatural. Is there superpowers in Lost? Des- Desmond's uh, a superhero. Yeah, he can. He is. He Desmond can, is a yeah. Time he can see the superhero. future sometimes. Yeah, time travel. Uh, I, I, that might be as that might be as far as we can go. 
The super, uh, vil- the let, super let, villains. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could set it as a Patreon target. Joe talks about Lost for two hours if we if we hit a certain Patreon e- target. Each episode of Lost for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah, so basically, I love the Giacchino music here. It's got such yeah. um, it's got such a pace and an energy to it. Um, did and I, it does, did I and read it does that they actually sixties? They actually wanted to get John Barry. Uh, oh really? And and I think actually John Barry turned it down because basically because what well, they wanted it to sound like on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and John Barry kind of basically said, "I don't want to do something that sounds like my old stuff." Yeah. Okay. Um, so they got Giacchino. Uh, I'm just reading actually as well that they probably part of what makes this work so well is that it was all it was recorded as if it was in the 60s. So. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. They recorded it analog. You know, yeah. they they used kind of instruments and technology that that would have been around in the sixties rather than anything more modern. Um, so that that definitely helps with the feel of it. But obviously, yeah, you know, he is doing a big old John Barry pastiche. Yeah, and it, but it, but boy, does it work? I think yeah. it, th- th- there's that, that main theme is so. And again, that I remember that um, 
you know, actually, I think I think again, yeah, the the original trailer did actually use uh, the Bond stuff, but you know that that main theme I remember coming out in the trailers and stuff, and um, you know, it is immediately a really striking element, and you remember it, you know, that kind of ba 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 ba, which you know is is Bondish, but has its own thing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's I think uh, Brad Bird is just one of those fortunate filmmakers who befriended Giacchino pretty early on in his <laughs> career. Same as so J.J. Abrams, I think Matt Reeves. I wouldn't be surprised if we if we end up seeing a Michael Giacchino Batman score at some point. Depends um, if we see that film ever happen. Which <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we are we're in the Affleck Maya right now, you guys, and um, I don't think anyone's surprised. Um, but yeah, and who and who else is that? I mean, Brad Bird, J.J. Abrams, Matt Reeves seems the one seem to be the ones who get who get Giacchino no matter what. I mean, because he even like he even he scored all of Fringe. Hmm. Um, he's a busy man, isn't he? He did Alias. <laughs> he's doing. He, he does. He does video games and also he's because I think he's done a load of Medal of Honor stuff hmm. in in the past. Like li- literally, does he stop working? <laughs> I mean, point? I I I, I um I. Back when I used to do like red carpet interviews, I got to interview Alexandra Desplat, um, which I think was for Rise of the Guardians, um, a, a, a very badly underrated animated film. Um, and I was just like, I was like, you, you, you're doing like a million different films. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing that, and here you're on a red carpet. Like, where do you find the time? And I think. It's not. It's just not the same for composers. Like I think it is. It's not. It's not like it's an easy job. But I don't think scoring a film is quite the task that directing one is. Mm. So, but it's a world that I don't know much about. Um, Seb, just you did mention John Barry a couple of minutes ago. I do have mm. to mention that I recently purchased the soundtrack to Howard the Duck on vinyl from eBay, and <laughs> and oh boy, what a purchase! I finally, because it's not available anywhere online other than YouTube, which I don't feel great about, so I finally own Hunger City, <laughs> and nothing has made me happier. So uh, maybe we could, again, stretch goal for Patreon, Joe reviews Hunger City for two hours. <laughs> or just one of these, one of these on days, we have to put on a screening of Howard the Duck. I feel, the thing about Howard the Duck is that I feel like we did it so long ago on the podcast, Um I almost feel like we need to do it again. <laughs> <It's, you know. laughs> I do remember um, I, it was it was pro- it was a while ago now, but I do know there was a, a couple of people asked on Twitter whether we would um, whether we would ever revisit the first couple of films that we did. So I think like mm. like uh, so we did uh, Batman eighty nine, didn't we? Daredevil was I episode Man one. Daredevil, yeah. And, Considering we now ramble on for, t- for sometimes two hours <laughs> and, plus, and these episodes were like forty minutes or something. forty-five, yeah. fifty minutes on. I remember, uh, I, I remember being really upset at the end of our Daredevil episode <laughs> that we we never discussed the costume. Yeah, how did we never discuss that costume? <laughs> it's insane. Um, but yeah, uh, so maybe maybe we will revisit some films at some point. But I mean, it'd be difficult not to revisit Howard the Duck as long as we don't have to watch the whole thing, Seb. Do we have to watch no. the whole thing? No. Yeah, I think you can piece it together from, especially I, the second half of the film. That I just want to, I just want to skip that on, chase yeah. scene. That chase yeah. scene is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but what a nice segue because what about the action scenes in this movie, Seb? Because I, I love the invention of the action in The Incredibles. The, the kind of the, the way that each, because it could, it could get quite boring, couldn't it? Like. 
I think Bob goes back to the... He, he fights that bot on the island. And then he goes back and I think we get a, a montage bit, do we? Of like him taking on different versions of it. Yeah. Maybe. And then eventually we see the the kind of the fight that takes him down. Um, And then it's another one of those bots in the city at the end. And they're not particularly... Of, of all of the kind of designs in this film... Those bots aren't the most ingeniously designed things. I think again, no. Bird Bird does fun stun with them, fun stuff with them, but they're not like gorgeous to look at or anything. No, uh, they're just they're, they're just big metal spheres with Doctor Octopus arms, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but but they are but they are fun to watch. I mean, I'm a, uh, I had the film on, I have the film on in the background, and I was just watching that first fight scene where old old man fat Bob Parr, his back. Gives up on him halfway through, mm. and you're like, "Oh no! How's he get? How's he gonna save the day here?" I, I really, really, by the way, I really love the character design of an out of shape Bob. I love that you can see that he was this big, muscly superhero guy, and like he's still strong and stuff, but that he's got the belly and he's slightly sagging, and it's you know, it's it's a really nice piece of design. The way you know, he's not just the you know he he is still he's still kind of barrel chested but you know he's he looks very distinct in the present day from how he does in the 60s and it's not just a case of just making him fat and slow like no. he's he's still got that mr incredibleness he's got that square it's jaw just, but it now yeah. kind of runs down into his neck rather than yeah. being it's just, it's, it's really defined. nice realistic aging um you know and obviously you know he sort of he gets more into shape as it goes on but he even by the end you know he's still he's he is still distinct from the 60s version you know he's kind of he is he is still a bit chunkier um, and it's and it's it's there's a comparison there with Helen who she doesn't it's not like she is now like um fat and out of shape or whatever but she's just I mean that that was never her thing anyway. But she's just she just looks frazzled, doesn't she? She just mm. looks like worn down and kind of like a woman in in her late thirties with late thirties early forties with two teenage kids. That mm. you know that it's just the wear and tear of that, and she's not even thinking about like she her powers are literally just there to like make her house run a bit smoother. Um, and again, I think I think they do a really nice job there. And then, as I said, how they work it in. So, like, Bob getting his back cracked in that fight mm. is really fun. And him kind of slowly getting back into shape, again, is convincing. It doesn't feel like by the end of the film, he's back to his... He's back to his physical peak. But he's back in fighting shape, at least. And you, mm. it kind of, it's kind of iterative throughout the film as well. Yeah. I, li- I like the moment when it, when it, when his back goes, and then he he gets thumped in the back, and he snaps back into place, and he's like, ah, <laughs> it's it's just it's just really great. Um, mm. I, I mean, and then some of the other stuff in the action scenes, I think, again, comes back to the tech, like some of this stuff that just feels completely unique to Incredibles. So, like the scene where he gets kind of those like expanding like polystyrene sticky balls that get fired at him. And that's one of those images that has always stuck with me after watching The Incredibles because I don't feel like I've seen it anywhere else. These kind of like little pellets that get fired at him and they stick to him and they expand and and trap him. It's something that mm. I haven't really seen anywhere. And, and I, I get that sense every so often from The Incredibles that yes, you are playing with 
this the, the the kind of the iconography of the '60s spy film, and you've got some some superhero elements thrown in there as well. Um, but yeah, you're also you're also bringing something new to the party because Brad Bird has just he's he's got that kind of mind. Yeah, um, and it's and it's fantastic. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that uh, that I don't quite love though, Seb. I I like the I like the blue version of the costume more than I like the the red ones. What about you? Yeah, no, I I I mean I yeah the the red one is is nice as the sort of the family unit thing, and that that is more of a nod to the Fantastic Four with the kind of the all in one color and and I say this as someone who uh, uh, <laughs> Halloween party when when Lois was very small, me and Joe and Lois went to a Halloween party as <laughs> as the Incredibles. I've seen that picture. It's yes. very good. <laughs> um but no I no I agree I th- I think I think the blue costume is a is a fantastic piece of design and it is quite disappointing that it's only in the film for such a short period of time. Um I think it's interesting with the red costume as well actually. It's it, it's maybe only a little thing but you have this whole scene that kind of builds up to it which is obviously fantastic like you know every moment that that Edna Mole is on screen and, and very good impersonation on on last episode Sting by the way Joe, <laughs> um, you know every moment that Edna is involved is is utterly fantastic and you have this whole scene that builds up to it and then you don't get a a reveal shot the first time you see the red costume he's sitting in the plane and it's almost kind of understated they don't kind of make a big deal out of da 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 here's the new costume, um, but no yeah I agree the, the the blue and black costume is is a really nice piece of design. That it's a shame, isn't? And again, you can see why it's not rolled out to the whole family because the it's his costume. It would it would make it that you know the blue costume is Mister Incredible's costume, the red costume is the Incredibles's costume. Yeah. You know, when Edna designs it, she knows she's going to do it for all four of them. So, yeah, you know, you know, Elastigirl wearing Mister Incredible's blue costume would seem a bit weird and wouldn't work. So, yeah, yeah, because she has her own like white and red yeah. design at the start, doesn't she? Um, I do, uh, I do hope that they switch, that they get a new set of costumes for the sequel, just because that would mean more Edna Mode. So, like, <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure you can't, you can't make an incredible sequel without Edna. So, yeah, um, voiced by Brad Bird himself as well, which always, because yeah. <laughs> you, you you listen to the performance and you're like, and I, there is a there is a real world rift there, isn't there? There's a real world person who they're playing with it from the fashion world who I can't, I I, I don't know the fashion world well enough to say who that is um but when you hear that when I, whenever i hear the voice performance for the first couple of times that i was watching this film i would like i'd always open up imdb and go who was that who's who's, who's <laughs> that voice and you're like no it's not brad bird i don't believe you i flat out don't believe you i'm sure that's someone famous who's voicing that character um but yeah edna edna's another one of these of the elements in this film that's kind of just immediately iconic. Mm. Apparently, apparently, actually, just looking at it, the uh, the provenance of, of Edna is is disputed. Um, there are some people who it's been claimed that um, she's based on, and, and Brad Bird has actually said that it's not her. And I, th- I think she's more uh, a composite of various people in fashion. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there isn't a definitive. She is exactly this person, um, at least according to Brad Bird. Yeah. Um, should we talk about someone who we haven't discussed yet? And I think it, it, it will be a nice way to segue into the more, one of the more controversial hmm. readings on this film. We haven't talked about Syndrome yet. Yeah. And again, this, this really does feel like it's something that's playing on 
um, some superhero stuff. In fact, this the, the the whole syndrome thing reminds me of was it Miracle Man that you had me read or Marvel Man? I can't remember what yes, the, what the um, accepted title there is. Uh, it's it's now officially. I think it's officially called Miracle Man. The the republished stuff is called Miracle Man, even though it's at Marvel. So. Um, you could call it either. <laughs> so, so the, I, I veer between the two depending on the context I'm talking about it. But yeah, but the whole idea of these kind of like teenage child sidekicks is very much a, a throwback, isn't it, to this mm. kind of '60s era of Captain America and Bucky and Batman and Robin. And I mean, I know there's a bunch more, but yeah, it, Speedy and yes. Yeah. Who now? Who now? If you're doing, if you're doing a superhero adaptation, now they become something else. They're either an aged-up version, or yeah. there is some kind of twist on on that character. Whereas, so if if anyone didn't listen to our Marvel Man episode or didn't uh, hasn't read it for themselves, the the kind of riff in that is that there's this superhero who had this teen sidekick, and he returns as the most terrifying villain years, years later after feeling kind of betrayed by the by the lead character. Um, how do you think how do you think that goes down here, Seb? And do you want to kind of introduce the <laughs> this criticism of the film that comes from mm. our our frequent collaborator on this podcast and other podcaster Al Kennedy, um, <laughs> who I've seen yeah. present this argument on Twitter and I think it's an interesting one that we should raise well just just before i do as well i'll, I'll just bring up that i, I like that um, i'm one of the things that jumped out at me back when this film first came out was that um jason lee was was voicing him and i was a big fan of jason lee through being a big fan of kevin smith's films at the time and i'm pleased that jason lee is apparently no longer a scientologist so i can feel less guilty about being a fan of him but i've always liked him as an actor like ever since more rats uh and What's i think this? he, he What's hmm? his son called? Is it Pilot Inspector? Is that... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes, his son's name is Pilot Inspector, which is just wow. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and, and you know, he's, he he plays that dickishness very, very well. Oh, um, he's, he's great. Like, I, it, I, it, I, no, it's not going to be my favourite voice performance in the film because no. <laughs> I'll get to that. Well, and it's probably Edna, but... Um, I thought you were going to say Holly Hunter, but that's just because Holly Hunter has the most amazing voice. Yeah, I mean, that is it. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I have a massive crush on Elastigirl, but it's difficult not to have a crush on anyone who has Holly Hunter's voice because it is just yeah. absolutely wonderful um, and perfect for this character. Absolutely perfect. But yeah, that's just another, another element of this film, and we yeah. digress. <laughs> so yeah, so the argument that that you could make is that you know syndrome when when he's a kid wants to be a superhero but doesn't have superpowers and bob essentially says you can't be a superhero you're not special like us um now i think i mean you know, i'm you i'm sure you'll you'll introduce a, a rebuttal to this that you know my feeling and from watching it again is that Bob is kind of shown to be wrong, or yes. well, Bob Bob acknowledges that he's wrong, and you know, and and his attitude is what creates the villain. I'm to be fair, I'm not certain that the film shows Bob to be wrong, even though I think there's a difference between Bob saying, "Oh, I shouldn't have said that; I was wrong," and the film actually bearing that out because the film 
doesn't really bear that out. You know, there's there's nobody in the film who is heroic and successful who doesn't have powers. And it's almost, I almost feel like, could there not have, I suppose there couldn't have been because he's a baby, but could there not have been some way that Jack-Jack does, doesn't have superpowers and saves the day? thus proving the point that you can be a superhero without being genetically predisposed to being one. Because actually what ultimately happens is Jack-Jack saves the day because he's one of the Incredibles and and has powers. Um, So it's... I, I can kind of see the point that it slightly reinforces this thing of there's us and there's them. Um, and and Buddy doesn't get to be one of us. He he's one of them. He's just one of the ordinary people. Um, you know, I I don't think it's it's ruinous to the film, and I certainly don't think it's intentional. But I think it's a reading that's there, and I I don't think it's totally invalid. No, I I don't think it's totally invalid. Um, but what what I would say from watching what I take away from this movie is I think that reading is there I certainly don't think that intention is there and and that's important for me anyway that I don't feel like this is a film that is setting out to say um, you know you can't aspire to be special unless you've got you know unless you've got the genes for it or whatever I don't think it's it's got anything like that intention Mm. And basically, all I think it needs is a bit of clarity because I don't feel like Bob at the start is saying, buddy, go away. You're not super powered. You can't be part of this world. I think he's saying... He's saying, I don't want you to get hurt on my watch. Yeah, he's saying, you're a a little kid in a costume. And I think it's almost almost a riff and a joke on those heroes with, with, like, kid sidekicks. Like... You're just gonna you're gonna get kidnapped and you're gonna be used against me and you're gonna get hurt and also what responsible hero would take a ten year old boy out to fight crimes with them? Like look at this guy I'm fighting. He's literally throwing bombs at us. This is not a good idea. And so what I think that for all the film needs is to be a little bit clearer about I wasn't saying you couldn't be remarkable, I was saying you could be remarkable in different ways, and you shouldn't be throwing yourself into harm's way. And I think the reason the film doesn't have any non-superpowered characters who are heroic, who are able to, like, affect the plot or save the day, is because this film is almost entirely concerned with characters who are wrapped up in the superhero world. The, the, The kind of, the background stuff exists, but the film doesn't really interact with them. Like, it's it's literally just the Incredibles, and their best friend is a superhero, and Edna is kind of someone who is wrapped up in the in in this world. They they the only person you really meet who's completely disconnected from it is Bob's boss, and I can mm. accept him being a massive a massive narcissistic asshole because he's voiced <laughs> by Wallace Shawn, which that's, <laughs> you know, you get, you get, you get a certain for. thing when you, when you I, get I, Wallace Shawn. I really, yeah. I like, I watched that scene and I'm like, oh, you've put Princess Bride in an office block for one, for, for, <laughs> for, for, for like a five minute scene. And I'm completely okay with that. It's uh, yeah, literally, it's literally talk about like people. having, it's having Fezzik and Vizzini there in, in the same room with a giant man and a very irritating small man who talks in circles. 
yeah, if you want to talk about people who've got some of the greatest voices, I mean, for completely different reasons from Holly Hunter, but but Wallace Shawn has one of the best voices. You know, he's, he's one of my favourite things in in the Toy Stories as well. Um, yeah, I do wonder. Uh, I think one of the one of the characters who potentially backs up this argument is uh, Mirage, who again is a, a non super powered character to the best of our knowledge, um, voiced by Elizabeth Pena and. Uh, I mean, she's kind of she's kind of set up, isn't she? As the kind of like the evil henchwoman who kind of doesn't isn't quite aware at the lengths that her boss is going to, perhaps, or mm. or she draws a line that is that is not as far as his anyway. Yeah. Um. I I wonder whether that's kind of something that you could salvage in the sequel because you look at her visually and I, and I'm like. Oh, is this going to be like a Black Widow riff? Is she going to be the non-superpowered character who gets to like kick ass in some way? And you all you almost expect some amazing fight scene coming with her towards the end of the movie, and it never really materializes. And I think that's that's one of the areas where the film slightly falls down, and it and it does, and it does feed into that argument. But it's like I say, I think it's there. I just don't. I I, I think the reading is there. I just. I think it's one that you need to look for because I don't think you watch the film and come away with that read. You come away with that feeling that that's what the film is saying. I think it's if you're watching it for long enough, you can kind of go, "Oh, that's a bit. That's a bit strange." And it's like I always talk about about Pixar and their villains. It's very strange when you look at Pixar films, which are films targeted towards eight or nine year olds mm. mostly, and what they do to their hero, what they do to their villains. Like, so many of their villains either die horribly, so I'm thinking of Up, or this film, or A Bug's Life, or, like, the Toy Story films, they are condemned to eternal yeah. torture. I mean, I mean, Syndrome dies in what is one of the most horrific ways to die. And the fact that it's something that we've already also seen happen to several characters, admittedly in flashback, but, like... Uh, oh, is it? I oh, know. It, it's only. It's only the. Is it only the one who gets sucked? Yeah, it's only. One. It's only in the flashback. It's only one that. So, the, so it happens to two characters in this film. It's really, really brutal and horrific, yeah. isn't it? But it's. But it's. <laughs> Pixar are geniuses at doing this. It happens. I don't think you think it's again. You don't think it's horrific. You're like, oh, it's the joke about the capes. I get it. Funny. And <laughs> but then you sit back and think about it. It's like. Oh no, and I think it's it, it like again. It's kind of the context that it kind of like it feels like the film justifies itself a second earlier by like, look, the dude just kidnapped the baby. Like mm. he's he's gonna stop at nothing. <clears throat> um, but yeah, it's still it's another one. You sit back and watch the film. And go, oh, that's another film where you killed <laughs> you killed the the villain by sucking him into a into an airplane turbine. Jesus Christ. <laughs> At least they don't see the blood splatter flying out the back for well, yeah. style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we want to talk about any of the individual members of the Incredibles family? I mean, is it, it are there any of those that either on this watch or on previous watches that just stands out to you as just like, oh, I always look forward to a scene where Elastigirl's in it or where Dash is there or where Violet's there because... Again, I think these are characters that, because Pixar films are watched by kids repeatedly as they grow up, um, I, I I certainly have watched the Toy Story films kind of probably every year since I was the first one, since I was six years old. And 
you know it's something that you grow up with and kind of you you change with and having an actual like a family to look at here with kind of like Dash as the young kid and then Violet as the kind of the awkward teenager and then the parents you can kind of you can kind of come back to this film with a different perspective each time you watch it I think or, or certainly it can for its audience uh, for its like target audience at the time so yeah are there any are there any characters that particularly stick out to you as like being like yes that's that's the one who who I'm always going. Yeah, I want to see them on screen. I mean, it's, pro- it's probably the case with with uh, with Helen, with Elastigirl. You know, it's sort of is we calling her Elastigirl at the point at which she's the mom of the family. Yeah. But um, you know, yeah, I, and I I, th- I think I think she's the one who you know who works best in terms of taking the the premise of turning a superhero in into a family member. Um, you know, and it and it is kind of a shame that with the amount of time the film spends with Bob away on the island you don't really get as much as you'd like you know of kind of her at home sort of running the family the kids are fine you know uh, as I say it's a shame Dash doesn't play the guitar at any point um, <laughs> you know I, 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 I like the the plot development with Violet of you know sort of when, when she sort of becomes a superhero and comes into her own and actually uses her force shield properly for the first time. She's able to kind of come out of herself a bit more and become a bit more confident. It's a bit of a kind of sudden turn the way at the end she's asking the guy out and he becomes really nervous. But it's 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 a nice, you know, little touch. It's just sort of the only thing with that is that you sort of the point, you know, the mo if she becomes confident and, you know, kind of brings out her personality more, you're losing the metaphor of the fact that she's the one who turns invisible. And uh, <laughs> No, it's like, I, I, I like it. I like that it is it is um, them kind of growing to be defined by more than just their powers. Yeah. You know, it's almost like their powers, their powers kind of, even in this post-CPR world, their powers do define them. Mm. And by the end of the movie, that's less the case. Yeah. I do. I do wonder, Seb, whether we skipped over though something else that's vital in terms of the villain here. It's a ginger villain. <laughs> it's a it's a trope that we see a lot in cinema, and I mean, you must be particularly outraged by this. <laughs> yeah, but Elastigirl's redhead as well, so that's true. That's true. I think I think and and if anything I think Buddy wears it better. He's he's really he's really styled it into something special. <laughs> Sorry, that was just another one of those things that flashed flashed up in the background for me. Yeah. Um yeah, the I think the character that I that I always want to see is Helen. Um and I think I think it I think it mostly does come back to the voice performance. Mm. It feels like we've been missing Holly Hunter from cinema a lot and because because of her voice, because let's let's when, not forget the jar of piss. She's she's been on this podcast well, before. <laughs> that's what uh, I was about to mention. That um, uh, because of her voice, when she does turn up, it's so you know you, you're never going to be like oh who's who's that you know she's never she's never going to like completely disappear into a role. You're always going to be like oh Holly Hunter's in this thing, um, and I think sometimes it can work to her detriment. And I think the character in Batman v Superman just feels like a weird insertion into a film uh, in placement of kind of like a, a storyline that literally, yeah, is is centered around a jar of piss. Um, but then, uh, you know, she was in The Big Sick this year, which I don't know whether you've seen, Seth, but it's just one of the most... I haven't yet. No, but, yeah. one of the most wonderful films of the year. I thought. I mean, I, I'm. 
in the bag for Kamel Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon from like, uh, well, Kamel's appearance in some things before from lots of uh, podcasts that I've listened to. I just really liked those guys and was excited to see a story that I'd already heard told up on the big screen. Um, but then just like one of the unexpected pleasures in that movie was watching Kamel and Holly Hunter get drunk together um, for like 10, 15 minutes in the middle of the film. And it's, and, and she's just, she's just wonderful. And I think here, her voice makes Elastigirl uh, kind of iconic. She's the one, when I, when I think of The Incredibles, I think I think of her more than, more than anyone else. Um that, that 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 first scene is so great, and obviously you know it's when 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 you've seen it once and you know what it's what it's building to, the the impact is lessened. But you know that that flirtation on the roof and the fact that they're both on the way to their wedding. Um, oh yeah, and that line of you know when you said you had a prior engagement, I thought you were being being flirtatious banter. I didn't realise you'd forgotten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so good, um, and. I mean, he doesn't get mentioned as much, but it's Craig T. Nelson doing doing Bob Parr, and it's it's just a, I think a, a nicely cast, like slightly world weary, but he's got that deep, gravelled kind mm. of like superhero gravitas to his voice that I I don't think you'd you're ne- you're never gonna you would never have seen a live action film with Craig T. Nelson cast as the superhero. Mm. Um, but he works wonderfully, wonderfully here. I mean, similarly, I, do wonder how I can't he's imagine sound in the in the sequel because it's like he's he's seventy plus now. So I don't I don't know what his voice sounds like now, but hopefully he still does sound enough like Bob that it's not going to be weird. Yeah, um, I was going to say similarly, Samuel L. Jackson. You could never imagine him actually turning up in a superhero movie to voice a to voice a, a character, could you? No. <laughs> Um, the thing, see, the thing about this, I've, I've been meaning for a long time to get around to um, to updating, you know, the uh, uh, and I will eventually. I'll, we'll make a feature out of it. But the the league table of um, actors who've who've been in the most uh, comic book adaptation films, uh, and it, and they score points by it's not just by the number that they've been in, but it's multiplying the number of films they've been in by the number of roles. So playing one character in multiple movies doesn't score you as many points as playing five different characters in five different movies. Uh, and Samuel Jackson will definitely be quite high up in the list, but he'd be even higher if we included superhero films that aren't based on comics. You know, he's because <laughs> you've got Unbreakable, you've got The Incredibles. Um, I would include them, Seb. I, I think no, that makes it far too complicated because you have <laughs> you have the question of what counts for the genre, and yeah, it's I'm I'm not touching that. It's like the 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 only way to draw a line is to say that the original source material has to have been originally a comic so transformers wouldn't count even though they've been transformers comics because mm. it's not the original medium so that's the yeah. only like this the only way that i can make it possible to do <laughs> without it being open to interpretation here's here's the line what cinematic universe included on the podcast <laughs> no because that's that even that's open for debate yeah, <laughs> look at our debates true. about whether or not we're going to do split <laughs> yeah we got one response on twitter which was no <laughs> <laughs> Uh, an absolute, absolute deafening, deafening silence from the majority of the cinematic universe <laughs> listenership, who are ambivalent to whether we ever cover that or not. Um, Seb, uh, I want to take a moment to call out one of my favourite characters in The Incredibles, and I'm going to ask you a question, and I'll see if you can respond. Uh, what are you waiting for? 
<laughs> I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Oh, it's just... <laughs> Every time I see that kid, the first scene when the when the bubble gum bursts on his face, and the second time when he turns back up, I'm hoping he's going to be a crucial part of the sequel. <laughs> should we should we talk the sequel um, and kind of what we're expecting, what we're hoping for? It's funny, isn't it, that we've we've in the last couple of podcasts we covered Unbreakable, which was unexpectedly getting a sequel. 15 years on, and then The Incredibles, which it was kind of, as is the way with Pixar films, like people say, oh, we're going to get an Incredibles sequel, and they're like, oh, maybe at some point, and then kind of like, it's just like a quiet announcement, like at one point, like, oh yeah, we are, we're developing, we're developing Incredibles <laughs> too, so you might see that, and it's it's just, a, I think, a funny, a funny little twist of fate that both of those movies are getting sequels so much later on. Um, I'm slightly worried about The Incredibles 2, and that's because I've seen Finding Dory, um, <laughs> which I don't know whether our listeners would agree, but I thought was uh, an absolutely tragic sequel um, to Finding Nemo, uh, which uh, felt like a kind of a by-the-numbers, let's go through this stuff again, we'll try and ground it in emotion, but it's it, it's not recapturing the magic. And also strange to me was a movie coming out 15 years later, and you do have the benefit of doing this in animation, which you don't really in live action, of, well, we'll just set the sequel straight, kind of like moments after the first one ended. I guess when you're dealing with fish, you can't really die 15 minutes, 15 years into the future, because we'd be dealing with their great-grandchildren. Um, but The Incredibles, they could have they could have jumped forward. It could have been an older Bob and Helen. It could have mm. been a... A kind of a grown-up Dash and Violet. It could have been a teenage Jack-Jack, you know? All these kind of things. The only thing we've really heard about The Incredibles 2 is that it picks up seconds after the ending of this film. And yeah. so we'll kind of... The opening sequence will be the battle with the Underminer. Mm. Um, is, is that what... Is that what excites you or, or would have excited you the most about an Incredibles sequel or would you have liked to see the, the kind of the... The format I mean, mixed up. A yeah, bit. it would be nice to see things mixed up a bit, and and you know, particularly to take into account, you know, if if you're doing a riff on superheroes, then if you're doing it now, it's like what we talked about with doing again. It's another parallel with doing a sequel to Unbreakable. Uh, you know, Unbreakable and The Incredibles are riffs on superheroes that came out in the early two thousands, and since then we've had a decade of superhero movies becoming the dominant genre and being completely redefined by the Marvel films and by the Dark Knight and that kind of thing. So I would hope that The Incredibles 2 would take that into account a little bit more and I think moving on the timeline would be a way to do that. Um, so it's kind of a shame that not, I, I, you know, it's quite fun the idea of going straight on to the battle with the Underminer. You know, I don't know if it's been confirmed whether John Ratzenberger will be coming back. That you would, you would assume that <laughs> <Yes>. he will. <laughs> um, what I find interesting is that, oh, and just as far as voice cast goes as well, uh, I see. I, I was, I was assuming it would be the case that Spencer Fox wouldn't be returning, and I have seen, I've seen that yes, they have replaced him with a child actor, but they have got the same uh, actress to play um, Violet again. What I think was, is, is interesting was an adult, though, is that... adult actress when uh, when she well, that's... Sarah Vowell and she was an adult when she yeah exactly this role. so yeah um, but I do find it interesting and I hadn't seen this that apparently Brad Bird has said that the sequel is going to be much more about Elastigirl rather Good. than Bob great so 
yeah, I think that that's probably the thing to be most given what we've just been saying. Disney's, um, Disney's first, so like she just she just <clears throat> sacks off the rest of the family, and we get kind of like we get Disney's Black Widow movie essentially yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's elastic well it, yeah although i mean it sounds again what i was saying about you know it's a shame that we didn't see more of her sort of dealing with with things at home it sounds to me or it looks like the sequel's going to be focused on dealing with the consequences of of jack jack having superpowers and getting older so maybe it's it's going to be based around that and and she's going to be the one who's going to have to deal with that more. It could, so, it could kind um, of do. It could do what this film does. It could be that the prologue is set just after the underminer, the underminer attacks, and then we flash forward ten years or something like that. Mm. Um, you never oh. know. But I mean, I'm I'm excited to see Brad Bird come back to this. I mean, Brad Bird is someone. I, Tomorrowland was a disappointment, but it wasn't the kind of the Andrew Stanton, John Carter level of disappointment, and. Um, I, I don't know. It really feels to me like that Andrew Stanton. Uh, I don't know. It was. It was. It was very difficult to feel warm towards him with the way that he dealt with the kind of the backlash to his, to his uh, live action stuff. Whereas Brad Bird has gone off and he's done. He's proved he can do it with Rogue Nation, and he and Tomorrowland didn't work. But it doesn't feel same quite the same way that he's kind of like skulking back to Pixar to be like, oh, I'll do something that people will actually like this time. Um, it feels like he, he could kind of straddle both worlds successfully. Um, and yeah, there feels, there just feels like much more of a, an appetite for, well, I mean, I say appetite, Finding Dory was spectacularly financially successful, but there feels, it, it feels like it makes more sense to have an incredible sequel in 2017, 2018, whenever this is coming out. 2018. God, it's soon, Seb. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and there feels like so many different directions that could go in with this. And, and I think, again, because, because these characters are so strong, but also because what The Incredibles is really successful at is creating this idea of a wider world. You know, the, the fact that we kind of get all of these other superheroes referenced, don't we? Um, mm. but we don't really, the, the only one we actually really see is Frozone. And I, and you do wonder whether the sequel could have some fun with kind of, uh, watching a world that's reintegrating superheroes, mm. which I, I, I don't know. You, you could Frozone tell me from quite, comics. It's, it's interesting that, a, that, um, he's, again, I remember him being a relatively big part of the trailers and the whole where's my super suit bit. And actually, you know, apart from some bits at the start, that's pretty much his only bit in the movie. Yeah, he's really not a big character. Yeah. He's kind of like he's kind of like just the side, the side one. Yeah. Um, Sorry, anything yeah. you're saying. Yeah. So no, I was just wondering if if that's something that um, comics have ever dealt with. Like, you know, we talked you talked about like Civil War and Watchmen and the idea of retiring superheroes. But have we have we seen many stories where they're kind of like reintegrated back into the world, like the kind of the reemergence of the superheroes? Is that a trope that we've ever that we've ever had explored seriously in comics? Um, I mean, I guess only really. I mean, obviously, thing yeah, things like Watchmen. Um, only really in the sense of I'm kind of thinking of of, of DC here of a, almost a kind of a a retconning of it. So um, the sort of what they ended up establishing in the nineties at DC, maybe kind of kind of in the eighties and in the nineties at DC when they kind of revised the timelines was this idea that there had been superheroes during the war and then 
superheroes kind of went away for a while not for any particular reason just more you know the heroes that were there got old and retired and nobody really replaced them and then a new wave of superheroes came along sort of thing Mm. um but as i say that that was really just kind of back retconning to account for how publication had, had gone over over periods of time so um you know yeah i'm sure there are sort of um yeah sort of i'm trying to think if sort of um yeah, it's kind of specific. There probably are because there, I mean, there's that many sort of stories out there that are that are riffs on the genre and that are sort of mm. you know pulling the genre apart, and that that would be the kind of the kind of area you'd expect to see it. Um, yeah, I'm struggling I'm... to think of specific examples that I can name that exactly fit what you're talking about. But yeah, but then the other I'm thing sure I wonder are. with, with um, I mean, we spoke about with Unbreakable that it would be fun to see Shyamalan kind of like do some fun metasexual stuff with the superhero genre. Um, mm. As you said, because this is mostly a spy film with superhero trappings, I'm not sure that I really want to see The Incredibles 2 yeah. kind of playing with the genre. But what I would like to see is um, is Brad Bird, rather than laying a sp- spy stuff on top this time, maybe he lies, maybe he, you know, puts a, a different genre on top of the sequel. Um and I wonder what I'm wondering what that is. Maybe it's a maybe it's a coming of age movie with Jack Jack. Mm. But then if he, <laughs> I mean, because but if he did that, it's not really The Incredibles, then is it? Because you know, I I think so so much of The Incredibles is wrapped up in this this riff on the '60s and and this styling. I wouldn't want to see it move away from that. I'd I'd like to have it look and feel and sound like the first one does. You know, I would like to. I would like to see it take chances and and <laughs> and really mix up the formula and just kind of like we've got these characters and we've still got Brad Bird and let's and let's mix up what they're actually doing this time. And I don't know what that is, but there's I mean there's so much potential. So much potential. Ah, oh, well have we uh, have we sufficiently discussed um the Incredibles, do you think, Seb? Is there anything we've missed out? Is there anything that James would have would have thrown in there to tell us? Of a, I mean, like James would have would have at some point referenced how he's dead inside and doesn't appreciate this film manipulating his emotions. <laughs> I would imagine. But is there anything else? Does it? Um, does this film manipulate the emotions? As as Pixar no. films as, go, it's yeah, not as Pixar very. Films go, uh, no, yeah, it do, it doesn't have doesn't really have that one moment that pretty much all Pixar films have. Um, that sort of that 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 completely shatter you. Um, <laughs> it yeah, it is I'm it's not... fairly sort of uh, straight down the line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So so there's uh, so there's nothing that we want to. There's nothing that we feel we've missed. No, I think it's you know it's. I think it's it's another one of these films that probably. I'm I'm not saying that it kind of it it, it looks weaker in retrospect or whatever, but I think I think at the time. When when there wasn't as much, when there weren't as many really great takes on on superhero films, it's easy to see why this became so beloved so quickly. Um, I think watching it now, I think it, I think it's 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 such tremendous fun. But a lot of what makes it fun is um, the styling, the music, the design, the characters. Like it's it's the characters more than the story, and it's like actually when you look at it, it's not doing anything that interesting with the plot and the story really. Um, so I think I think that I think that's the element that maybe looks a bit weaker in retrospect because we're used to more interesting things being done with stories in 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 this field. 
Um, but it's just, yeah, it's I, I, with the exception of hating Pixar for some reason, I can't imagine anyone who likes this stuff um, not enjoying this. It's it, it's just an awful lot of fun. Yeah, and I think the one the one thing I would add, and it's something that I talk about, uh, always been kind of central to uh, my appreciation of a movie. But in the third act, when these characters do kind of, or when the family's reunited, when everyone comes together, I think another thing that this film really nails is the is the dynamics within the family. I think the relationship between Dash and Viola is delightful as it develops throughout the movie. Mm. That kind of like that kind of like push pull that you have with a sibling that then that then but the bond is there yeah um i love by the way the um the traveling back to the city in the camper van that's that's a great (laughs) image um you know and again just sort of really it does bring out the central metaphor of the film but uh it's a you know moments like that are things that this film does that that you can't imagine another film doing you know Mm. yeah um and I think, yeah, the, the the same for for Bob and Helen. The kind of it, it's it's that. I mean, the maybe the central metaphor of the, this movie is, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, the kind of the, the strain that that family can bring sometimes. You know, the the kind of like you you see Bob and Helen having like marital issues. They're kind of they they're kind of just in a rut. They live together, but that that's about it. They argue. And this crisis kind of bringing them all further together. But I, I mean, I, I, it feels authentic when they're arguing, and it feels authentic when Bob kisses Helen after she after he thinks that she's dead, even though she's still absolutely furious with him. And then the kind of the way that they bond together again as they as they kind of rekindle their younger days, I, I think, is ab- absolutely magical. Um, yeah, uh, this is. I think we we're, we're in a really nice little run on the podcast at the moment of covering good films. Um, and hopefully that will continue in the next couple of weeks. We've got, um, we've got a couple of new releases coming up, don't we? We do. Uh, we've got a, a, a particularly big one that I think we're all looking forward to, uh, in a couple of weeks. And then after that one that I'm not so sure everyone's looking forward to, but Hey, I was looking forward to Spider-Man Homecoming more than I was looking forward to Wonder Woman, and I enjoyed one of those films a lot more than the other. Yeah, but come on, are you really going to lay your cards on the table and say you think that uh, Justice League is going to be more enjoyable than Ragnarok? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bit more confident this time. We'll see. Could be surprised. Okay, uh, well, that was um, The Incredibles. uh, And Seb, it'll it'll be very interesting to hear what your comic book recommendation is going to be for The Incredibles. Um, yeah, so a uh, couple of things here. So they, uh, despite the fact that The Incredibles isn't based on comics, um, other than, you know, sort of the influences that it has, there are Incredibles comics. Unsurprisingly, there, there was a comics run after the film came out. Look, quite a few years afterwards. Uh, I think it was about five years or so. Um, it was published by uh, Boom Studios, um, and uh, they, they they sort of did a few story arcs. It was written by uh, Mark Wade. The first volume is called uh, The Incredibles: Family Matters, uh, written by Mark Wade, who was kind of quite heavily involved with with Boom stuff at the time. Uh, drawn by uh, Marcio Takara. Um, now the problem with this series is that it ran for a little bit. I don't know if there were about kind of about twelve to fifteen issues. 
Um, and then it got cancelled because basically Boom lost their license for Disney and Pixar stuff. Ah, uh, yes. I don't think it was actually connected to the the buyout of the Disney buyout of Marvel because you know it's not like Disney have decided to publish Incredibles stuff through Marvel since. They have done some Disney stuff through, kind of through other publishers and that. I, I think there were other issues with with Boom between Boom and Disney that meant that Boom lost their license. Unfortunately, it does mean that this stuff isn't in print anymore and I don't think it's available digitally and I'll be honest I'm not entirely sure how you're going to get hold of it other than by uh, less than legal means although my attitude with comics are if if, if a, it's like with Miracle Man for years if a comic is, is out of print due to complicated rights issues that means that nobody can publish it I feel less bad about going and finding it online and reading it that way so uh, you may have to do that in order to read the Incredibles comics but I think it's you know um, I haven't okay. had... I might be able to find them on eBay yeah, you might. Yeah, um, I I haven't actually. I've I've seen bits of them. I haven't really read them myself. But it but it's Mark Wade doing incredible stuff. So I'm I'm sure it's it's pretty decent. So <laughs> I, I, I would I would recommend you give the first arc, Family Matters, a go. Um, I think there's an interesting thing with the artwork where I know that they sort of deliberately um, didn't want to try and have it look like the movie. So the characters are more kind of comic style. They're still quite stylized and still quite cartoony. Um, but they they didn't just replicate the look of the film in a comic because I think that wouldn't have worked, and you know I think I think they were wise not to. Um, the other thing I think you should probably do now. The thing is, I don't really know how far you should go with this because I don't know. I'm not super familiar with the content of the early issues, but I reckon you should go and read at least the first three issues of the original Lee and Kirby Fantastic Four run. So the very original from no you know, starting with issue one in November nineteen sixty one, the you know, essentially the beginning of the Marvel universe. Um I, I would at least go to issue three because issue three is where they finally actually get their costumes and sort of become, you know, the superheroes that you would expect basically start because i'm sure that this all must be on unlimited it would be insane if the original fantastic four wasn't on marvel unlimited mm. start reading see how far you get either in the available time frame or until you get bored and just see what you think of some early original early 1960s fantastic four comics um the Wonderful. final thing that i that i would recommend is um Go and listen to the album Guppy by Charlie Bliss <laughs> and tell us what you think of it on the Minnesota. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, uh, let's move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and so, Seb, it's it's gonna ha- it's gonna have to be me versus you this week, and we're gonna have to bring in James as a um, as a judge when he returns on the next episode. Um, so I did write the pitch. You'd think I'd be at an advantage, but I was hoping James would be on this episode and didn't really prepare anything, um, <laughs> which is why I'm going to ask you to go first. So the pitch this week is, which pre-existing superhero property would you like to get an animated adaptation and which studio would you like to make it? Oh, I thought it was which, uh, which, which one specifically would be a Pixar, I thought was the... Nope. Because <laughs> cause we've, we've done this already. Have we? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I remember pitching a Plastic Man. Okay, well let's animated, let's, but... do, let's let's do let's let's <laughs> let's change it up on the fly, Seb. Let's do which pre-existing superhero movie would you like to get a Pixar adaptation? <laughs> um, 
I think Pixar should do an adaptation. Of, hang on, does it have to be superhero or can it be comics? I mean, Seb, at this point, I think we've played with the format <laughs> enough that you can just you can just pitch what you like. I mean, I, I could I could say Plastic Man um, uh, again, but because I do think a Plastic Man animation. No, what I'm going to say is I believe that Pixar should do an adaptation of We Three by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. Um, we th- I've you, read that. Have you I've read, read it? it. Okay, I wasn't sure if you'd read it because if you Reece, hadn't, I realised it bought me as a birthday gift a couple of years ago. So you already know that it is a one of the absolute greatest comics ever published, and b it will absolutely destroy you. And it's like, I mean, it, it it basically is a Pixar movie in in comic form, just with with ultra violence. For those who don't know what We Three is, We Three is a story about a dog a cat and a rabbit who have been experimented on to turn them into armoured remote-controlled soldiers who escape and try to find their way home. Um, I think I think Grant Morrison described it as... Oh, what's that film called? Is it The Incredible Journey? Is that, have I got the title of that uh, right? Yeah, the, the, the Homeward Bound thing, but early. Yeah, uh, with uh, crossed with The Terminator. Um, and it's... You would not believe how much this comic just tugs at your heartstrings from from start to it's it's so upsetting, but it is so 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 brilliant. I remember I was buying it as it was coming out because it was it was around about the same time actually that Morrison and Quitely were doing All Star Superman, so it was you know both of them were pretty much at the peak of their powers, and it was the point at which Frank Quitely was you know becoming my favourite ever comics artist and I was buying these issues as they were coming out and I bought, I remember buying either the second or third issue uh, in Worlds Apart in, in Liverpool and going and sitting in the McDonald's that was round the corner and reading this comic that I'd just bought and I had to put it down and stop because I was about to start crying in public um, it's just like, so in ter- you know if, if you imagine the first ten minutes of Up but for an entire movie um that's what you'd get with a Pixar adaptation of Wii 3. Well, I, I mean, I feel like you're going to win this. James James will pick that. Um, so I, I'm just going to throw out uh, a couple of things that... I don't know. James I, doesn't like being emotionally manipulated. So. That, is, that is true. But he but all of these are going to be Pixar's. So um, I, in terms of... Uh, so I, Pixar always put a short movie ahead of their main feature. Yeah. And I would like to see this happen... Uh, not only on this Marvel adaptation that I'm going to pitch, but also in front of um, The Incredibles 2. And I'd just like to see Pixar take the Scotty Young characters, versions of Marvel <laughs> characters. And I know we're getting an animated version of that, but I'd love to see that in kind of 3D Pixar style. Um, and because their short movies tend to be quite slapsticky kind of stuff anyway. Um, or, or can or can be. Um I'm thinking of more of their their earlier ones before they've gone into some of the more like arty, ambitious 2D ones. Um, mm. I do love um, Presto, the one from before Wally. That is so much oh, fun. Yeah, it's really Hilarious. good. Uh, par- Partly cloudy, I think, is wonderful. Day and night, which was before yeah. Toy Story three. Uh, yeah, there's some amazing stuff in there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch like a, just a Scotty Young Pixar short movie, and then. Uh, do the the boring kind of like what makes most sense in like a boardroom. You do the power pack, don't you, as a Pixar movie? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I'm sure that is probably tied up in rights issues um, somewhere. Uh, but yeah, they, they, it's it's the one that that they're the characters that you know you can you can almost see them 
you can almost see them in Pixar style already. And and also, it kind of feels like that's what Big Hero 6 should have been at Disney Animation Studios in the first place. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, know that, I know there are some people who really like Big Hero 6. It feels to me like... Um, one of the weaker movies that Pixar have done in, uh, sorry, that Disney have done post John Lasseter coming on board, um, and it has uh, in in true Marvel movie style, particularly for that that kind of time period, a really bad third act um, <laughs> with with some with some very silly silly stuff going on that doesn't make any sense. Um, Power Pack would not have had that at Pixar, and so that's why I'm pitching the Power Pack movie with a Scotty Young short film preceding it. Let's see what James picks next week. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, Shall I try and predict this? Go on. Then. He doesn't. He doesn't want to greenlight any Pixar movies, and we both lose. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, that's it for this week's podcast. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. And on Patreon, Seb, you've got something that you want to plug? Uh, yep, so um, we've got a new Patreon exclusive. Well, it's not new. It's probably been out a couple of weeks by the time this episode comes out. But um, yeah, a, a Patreon exclusive episode. Um, it's I think we've talked about it before, but it's the episode in which David Hartrick and I talk for about an hour and a half about Nightfall, the Batman story art from the 90s. Uh, so if you want to hear us talk about that and you're not already backing us on Patreon, then uh, please go and, and check out our Patreon feed. You can, uh, you, can, you can cheat if you want and like back us for one month just to hear what's on that feed and then stop backing us but it'd be nice if you carried on continuously and it would also mean that you can get um entries into the uh the competition to win a prize which i don't know if james has announced the winner of that one yet which was to win a spider-man figure i know that uh entries have closed but he probably would have announced it on this podcast um but he's not here so um, <laughs> i will probably announce it on social media and we will yeah um, we'll... So, so that we don't leave the winner waiting but we will then uh we will then mention whoever the winner is on the next podcast. Yeah, so somebody on Patreon is getting a Spider-Man action figure, and in the next month, there'll be another competition to win something else as well. So uh, if you like the sound of that, and if you like the sound of hearing extra stuff that you don't get to hear on the main feed, then um, please chuck us a bit of cash, because it, it helps us to keep running the podcast. Uh, you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicuniverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at cine underscore verse. Or send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. We're the same, you and I. Just a couple of hot-headed fools. Yes, same. Hulk like fire, Thor like water. Yeah, we're, we're both like fire. Uh, Hulk like raging fire, Thor like smouldering fire. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Thor Ragnarok. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.